Our God, what a grand reality. We just celebrated in song that you, the innocent one, Lord Jesus, would die for guilty sinners such as us. We thank you that though we could not live a perfect life under your law, your son did in our stead. And he died the only death that could purchase redemption. We pray that as we look into your word and even as we conclude our worship service around your table, that you would grip our hearts with this grand reality. And as we now look to the scriptures to instruct us, we remember that you have promised blessing to the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But you promise to bless one who delights himself in the law of the Lord, the one who meditates day and night, and you promise security. You promised flourishing like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in its season, whose leaf does not wither, and whatever that man does will prosper because he's living in obedience and conformity and consistently with sound doctrine. We ask you to take your word. Might your spirit be our teacher. All for the express image that we describe glory to your name through lives of worship and grateful service. We pray this in the name of Jesus, the name above every other name. Amen. I invite you to return with me to this little epistle that Paul wrote to Titus, one of his sons and co-workers in gospel ministry. Chapter 1, he had taught us the qualifications of church leadership, their theology and their character. And then in chapter 2 that we've embarked on these last couple of weeks, we are still looking at character, not necessarily just in the leadership of the local church, but the whole congregation in different groups, different segments of what the local church consists of the character and the conduct of church members in the different groupings that we find ourselves in. We've already mentioned that those specific admonitions are given directly to certain groups within the church. They carry an importance, a responsibility for all believers. That's the beauty of the Word. Uh, I think I'd shared last week that though... Uh, the Apostle was specifically referencing and addressing ladies in the church, the older and the younger. I found myself in my study being greatly convicted as, as the older are instructing the younger to be keepers of the home, lovers of their husbands and lovers of their children. And it's not just speaking to the, the women that we can learn much at the foot of this beloved Apostle. There is living truth to direct our footsteps and transform our thinking so that we cannot check out if we're not the older men or the younger men or the older women or the younger women that are addressed in the text or even the slaves that we'll look at. So join me in chapter 2 and verse number 1. We will read through verse 10 to see how this whole section fits together in this teaching ministry that Paul had entrusted to Titus on the island of Crete. Notice the command in verse 1 and the context of the congregation in the following verses. But as for you, in other words, in contrast to the false teachers that were addressed in chapter 1, As for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, and perseverance. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, 
Workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Two other groups to flesh out the rest of the the passage here that we'll look at this morning, verses 6 through 10. Likewise, in the same manner, urge the young men to be sensible. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame having nothing bad to say about us. Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. You notice both the the virtues as well as the actions that are elicited on the pages of the inspired Word of God. So let's learn from the two remaining groups what character, what kind of character adorns the gospel that we might be healthy servants in the church. Healthy churches raise high and teach and promote and urge others in sound doctrine. And that sound doctrine is what makes, or, or healthy doctrine is what makes healthy saints and healthy churches. So let's learn from these groups what character adorns the gospel. Verses 6 through 8, we see the second to the last grouping, young men of God. Young men. Now, this is most men here this morning. This is a range, very broad range from 12 years old all the way up to about 60 years of age. We'd already made the case last week for that terming old, or older, excuse me. Paul referred to to himself in the next book, in in your Bibles, the book of Philemon, verse 9, as being an older man, one who's around 60 or thereabouts. Older women, as Paul will write to Timothy about older women, especially the widows of the church, they cannot go on the widow's roll, the list, until they're at least 60 years old, that they are older women. 1 Timothy chapter 5. Titus must have been nearing 40 by this time. And so, don't think that he's some young buck when uh, Paul addresses him as a young man. Um, you might not feel, be feeling like a, a young man when you get uh, uh, middler years, but you don't qualify being an older man, and even if you get your AARP card early. So young men is this, is this broadest range of men from 12 to uh, close to 60 years old. You're training to be a responsible, godly man. Taking the responsibility to lead others in God's truth. And not fritter your life away in vanity and emptiness. Let me be quick to add uh, or to clarify that I, I don't necessarily buy into the uh, culture today that has several groupings of people. You know, in, in Scripture, we, we see uh, children and we see adults, but in our day and age, we, we talk about adolescence. And I would commend to you uh, a little article written by a friend, Rick Holland, entitled The Myth of Adolescence. I found that very stimulating uh, probably 15 to 20 years ago when I first came across it. When you look at how Scripture addresses people, you're either a child or, or you're an adult. So act like it, in other words. Uh, not if you're the child. Uh, we expect that. But here's what you aspire towards Of course, this is after bowing to Christ as Savior and Lord that you're to exercise these virtues of the gospel. So he says, I I exhort or I urge you men. Notice how that this is uh, present tense here. This is supposed to be a constant habitual training in the local church. What does godly manliness look like according to Scripture? 
This is no one-day seminar. No thing that you can just get it and you're done with it and move on. This is ongoing throughout the issues of life and the issue of the church. And rather than being heavy-handed and domineering and demanding, humbly, lovingly come alongside these young men and urge them towards godliness. You'll notice that he, he keeps throughout this, this section using that word, likewise. Likewise. Though there are different specifications brought to the surface and focused on for living, and he wanted to drive those home, whether you be older men or older women or younger women and now younger men, healthy doctrine has implications for how life is lived to, to everyone. So let's look first of all at the exhortation here. The exhortation, letter A. Notice what he urges the young men towards. Be sensible. Be sensible. They too, just like the previous two groups in verse 2, verse 4, verse 5, they were as well told to be sensible. But as he looks at young men in the local church, they are to be focused on being sensible. Various forms of the word occurs, uh, occurs throughout the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus, indicating the importance of Christians in pursuing moderation in life, sensibleness, or self-restraint. The world wants to live in excess, and I want to I live by my life and uh, my requirements, no restraint. Why should I withhold what I want? Scripture, in contrast to that, says that you are to live a life of self-control would be a good synonym here. This self-control is to have one's total life under the control of your mind. You notice how, how throughout Scripture, especially uh, you, you take any epistle, uh, take Second Peter where I'm stirring up your remembrance or, or James when he addresses trials knowing this. Or go throughout the book of Romans how that the apostles are constantly appealing to what you know. It is, there is an academic aspect, a learning, a tutelage aspect to Christianity. And so we are to learn how to live as believers in this present world, we're to live a life under control of our mind. A self-controlled mind is the only path to a self-controlled life. It's not just discipline for discipline's sake, but discipline unto godliness. To say that we don't necessarily subscribe to the world's view of this myth of adolescence is to say to these young men, act like a godly young man, not a victim of circumstances, but of being a responsible participant. That you are responsible for your behavior. And you're even responsible for the thoughts that lead into the behavior. You're accountable to change sinful thought patterns and sinful behaviors. Now, like I'd said, the older men, they'd received four exhortations. The older women got five. The younger women, seven. Why do the young men get one instruction? Be sensible. Why are they getting off so easy? For this particular group, it is a virtue that tends to be quite deficient. Quite deficient. Don't live life as if it's your lot to be a victim or to be a passive observer. Take the bull by the horns. Be aggressive. Be actively involved in pursuing godliness through discipline. Self-control. Sensible. It is a mark of spiritual maturity. It must be your goal, men in this church, to be sensible men. You young men 
anywhere from 12 to 60, right around in there. Make sure you learn to exhibit being sensible as a continuous habit of life. Different forms of this word uh, are used throughout the chapter, laying responsibility on every group. Whether Paul's addressing the older men or, or older women or younger women or younger men. Different forms of this word, being sensible or self-controlled. I find it interesting that uh, outside of Pauline writing, if you, if you uh, trace this, this idea through the Gospels, you read about the insanity of demon possession and the contrast to the insanity of demon possession is this word being sensible or one who is in their right mind. So what the Apostle is bringing to our attention is, men, you're responsible to be sensible, self-controlled, in your right spiritual mindedness. In the bulk of the uses of this term, uh, self, uh, self-controlled mind is what enables you to lead a self-controlled life. There is a, that is the vital connection. So that if, if uh, young men could learn one thing at Newtown Bible Church today, one thing that would yield great and far-reaching benefit in life, if you want the blessed life of Psalm 1 that we started off our sermon and prayer on, if you want to become a sensible old man that we were exhorted to in verse 2, it begins today as a young man. It doesn't come through osmosis. It doesn't come through just observation. It comes through intention, intentional commitment. Why don't you commit to that today? And with this one admonition, young men be sensible. Notice how the next verse begins in all things. Now, there's a debate among commentators because as you look at the structure in the Greek, that phrase in all things could either go with verse 6 or begin verse 7, which the uh, NASB starts verse 7 as. But in all things, this next phrase comes right after being sensible or being sober-minded and self-controlled. So that's the exhortation. Let it be. Notice the example. And the reason why I give this a point in the sermon when we say, okay, well, if the whole point is to be sensible, why are you talking about, uh, uh, though it's not commanded in verse 7 to be an example, it comes with almost the same force, the same commanding force of verse 6. In other words... Okay, you think that you've got this uh, sensibility, this self-control thing down? Okay, look at your life. What kind of example are you? It's not, an, it's not optional advice. Recognize that everyone's an example. You're either a bad example or a good example. You think about how when in your growing up years as a, the youngest of men in your teen years or so, you start looking up to all these heroes, whether they be sports heroes or music heroes or any other heroes, young men demanding heroes. Oh, that we would hold up and learn from godly, faithful men that have gone before, men like Stephen, the martyr. Moses, Peter, Paul. The term Paul uses here when he says that in all things show yourself to be an example of good deeds. Be a positive example. That term tupos means pattern. Example. This is what Paul will use elsewhere, like when he addresses the Philippians in Philippians 3.17, and he says, join in following my example, my life. This term originally referred to the mark left by a blow. So if you hit something, 
the, uh, the image that would be mirrored on that is, is this term tupos, the image or pattern, model, something made under pressure. So in the same way that you would take a pen or a sword or even a hammer to leave their mark, make sure your life, young man, leaves a mark in all things. Make sure it's a mark that's been stamped by the gospel of Jesus Christ that people can clearly see the fingerprint of the Spirit of God transforming you of one image of glory to the next. Model this. Matter of fact, if you've got the ESV, that's how they translate the term here, model. And with perfect confidence, Paul would say to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 11.1, be imitators, there's our term. Imitators of me as I am of Christ, the power of godly example. Men, do you leave a mark, a godly example on those who are looking up to you, who are following you, those who are being discipled, though if not by lesson, indeed. Notice as he unfolds what this looks like and, and means, what, what does a... a uh, powerful, godly example look like in good deeds? Number one, uh, showing good works or deeds. Uh, that was being discussed in uh, adult Sunday school this morning. Showing good deeds is a major theme of the letter that Paul wrote to Titus. Notice bad examples that were given back in chapter 1 and verse number 16. The, uh, the false teachers on Crete, they, they're those who profess to know God, but by their deeds, they deny Him, being detestable, disobedient, worthless for any good deed. So in contrast to their model, Titus, hold up the godly model of what spiritual health looks like in a life that lives it out. Chapter 2 that we're studying this morning. Later on in verse 14, which we won't get to, he says you are to be zealous for good works. Chapter 3, verse 1, be ready for good works. Verse 8, careful to devote yourselves to these deeds. You're looking at your life. Paul says look at your life. Look at your example. You're accountable. You're culpable for making sure that your deeds line up consistently with the truth of the Word of God, lest they be invalidated. Titus, in your public ministry of teaching, be an example of integrity and seriousness and soundness of speech. Show good works. Number two, what's your good example look like? Teaching what is uncorrupt. Teaching what is uncorrupt with purity in your doctrine. Purity in your doctrine. In contrast to the, uh, the corrupt, you are to be a man of integrity. You are to be grave and serious, not frittering life away. Be sincere and untainted. Much to be said here. That term... Purity is the same term that we've already seen of soundness or health. Speaking of that which is correct, make sure you're teaching the truth. That which cannot be condemned or reproached. And it's not that your teaching's not going to be assaulted. You stand for the truth, you will be assaulted. There will be accusations all the time. Make sure it doesn't stick. That there's no basis for such reproach. Make sure that you are consistent with apostolic doctrine. This includes the method as well as the effect. As he goes throughout the, the churches, filling up what was lacking and correcting that which was wrong, he was to speak words of health. His teaching needed to be doctrinally pure, full of grace, and effective for producing spiritual health in those that he interacted with. Unlike the false teachers whose message led to quarrels, their message led to rebellion, their, their message was one of greed and irresponsible living 
was the fruit of it all. The Christian offers a message of health, a message of soundness, which leads to unity and obedience and generosity and goodness and responsible actions. So as Paul, under inspiration of the Spirit of God, addresses in particular Titus, but all young men in the church, is your example one of good deeds? Is your example one of uncorrupt teaching? Thirdly, is your example characterized by dignity? Write that third word down there, dignity. It's another favorite word in the pastoral epistles occurring six times in 1 Timothy and Titus. Again, we're, we're seeing godly example posited against negative example in the previous chapter. Those who reject the truth, those who do it out of dishonest gain, those without purity of motive, without desire for... You're, you're to be one who, who does it without desire for gain, a respect of persons, this purity of doctrine that he just mentioned. Be a man of integrity. Don't be like the mere talkers who utter emptiness and senseless things, chapter 1, verse 10. Because in verse 11 of chapter 1, he says these guys must be silenced. And the only way to silence false teachers with corrupt examples is true teaching validated by a godly example. Titus, make sure you've got it. Young man of God in the local church, make sure you've got it. That you are a man of dignity. Titus' words and his godly example should render them speechless. It should put the finger to the lips and shush them. And fourthly, make sure that this positive example not only demonstrates good deeds and purity and doctrine and being dignified. Notice how he begins verse 8. Sound and speech. Sound speech. This is different than this soundness of doctrine that he had already mentioned, a different term used here for speech. But all speech is included. Nothing frivolous, nothing unsound. And so, if the model of godliness and a healthy teaching is exalted, we ought to turn off Every preacher who uses crass language, who thinks that the only way to connect with his culture is through crude illustrations and provocative tones, because that is not consistent with godliness. Titus, make sure your speech is healthy, sound speech. So much more to be said, but time moves along. Paul exhorts Titus First of all, be sensible. Discusses the example that he is to lead. What does that example affect? Letter C. What is the effect of it? <laughs> the effect of it is that the opponent's going to be put to shame having nothing bad to say about us. This purpose clause tells us that what motivates us to be the godly example and to exhort others likewise is that we shame everyone that contradicts God's truth, every opponent of the truth. That term literally means to turn one on himself and so be ashamed. So that when they're coming after you saying that trying to point out all the holes in your theology, all that finger pointing gets turned back on themselves and they can't say a word. Instead of providing ammunition for those seeking to fault Christianity, saying, oh, all those hypocritical Christians, when they see the consistency of the life you live that validates your doctrine, there's nothing they can say. It'd be better that the opponents be embarrassed by having to make up their own false accusations than for you to give them any fodder for their conversation. Again, it doesn't mean, Titus, 
or anyone seeking to lead a righteous life won't have people saying negative things. They're always going to do that, but don't give them any grounds for it. Opponents exist in every age. They existed in Paul's day, and they exist in our day. Let me go on record again in saying in regards to our evangelism that it's not about your stuff, your strategies, your plans. Power doesn't come from from man-made methods and your strategies or your marketing techniques adopted from the culture or the preacher who who thinks that they've got to uh, engage in the culture's way of shady talking in order to gain an audience. You can't make unsaved Harry or Sally from the Willow Creek model feel comfortable in the church. And when they see the Lord's table taking place, it shouldn't make sense to them. It ought to look foreign. It ought to feel foreign when they go to a Bible-preaching church. Not that they're not welcomed and loved on, but it feels, feels odd to them because it's not like what they came out of in the world. The power to our evangelism, our teaching comes from lives transformed. And gospel hope administered over grace and the issues of sin in our lives. Things that ooze out of our lives of genuine virtue, moral purity, real godliness. Lives bearing witness to the validity of our message. That and that alone is what silences critics. Causes them to put a finger over their lips and be hushed. R. Kent Hughes put it this way in his commentary. Such instructions are meant to muzzle critics and defang persecutors who accused Christians of inciting rebellion and threatening the stability of society. When we see how difficult it is probably going to be to be a biblical, consistent Christian in days ahead, give them no fodder for their conversation by living a consistent example of godliness. Give them no grounds, not even the tiniest toehole or tidbit of truth to the enemy of the truth. So men, do you, have a, do you have a dignified life? What changes should be evident in your life, your life of good works as a response to gospel grace? What other examples of godliness can you begin to incorporate in the life that you lead in your in your neighborhood and on your place of employment. Young men, be sensible. In all things, showing yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent is put to shame having nothing bad to say about us. Notice this last group. Verses 9 and 10, slaves, which we will liken to workers in just a moment. Can I remind you not to read Scripture or interpret Scripture based on your preconceived ideas or exegete your imposed views or understanding? Even English, what is translated uh, uh, in English words can have different nuances in the original languages than what our English language might convey to us. Or even our Western culture read into Scripture. Like our blighted history of abusing man in slavery and thus, well, they can't really be talking about slavery here. Let's be careful because there's a lot of slave talk in Scripture. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you've turned your back on your sin and repentance and placed your faith in Christ alone, Scripture identifies you time and time again as a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are slave, He is master. If you are subservient, He is the superior. And it's meant to convey a distinction. Slavery then was quite different than what we've known it to be in the history of our, our land. A great number of early converts to Christ were slaves. This final group of people 
was a significant pers- uh, part of the uh, first century congregation, generally believed by historians that uh, they outnumbered freedmen in the Roman Empire. Slavery then was quite different. Men, women, children in the Roman Empire and much of the ancient world were owned. And as the lowest rung of society, they had few, if any, civil rights and often were accorded little more dignity or care than the domestic animals. There's a big range in slavery. You could be anywhere from a ship's oarman to, uh, to craftsmen to, to teachers. They, uh, many of them would become well-educated, holding responsible positions as householders. One commentator uh, was, was helpful this week as I, I was looking at this explanation of slavery uh, to help uh, explain Scripture, what, what God means by what He says. This is what he wrote, quote, Although slavery is not uniformly condemned in either the Old or New Testaments, the sincere application of New Testament truths has repeatedly led to the elimination of its abusive tendencies. Where Christ's love is lived in the power of His Spirit, unjust barriers and relationships are inevitably broken down. As the Roman Empire disintegrated and eventually collapsed, the brutal, abused system of slavery collapsed with it, due in great measure to the influences of Christianity. In more recent times, the back of the black slave trade was broken in Europe and America due largely to the powerful, spirit-led preaching of men with the likes of John Wesley and George Whitfield, and the godly statesmen of such men as William Wilberforce and William Pitt. Because of our history, we want Scripture to side with eradicating slavery because of our history, and then we won't feel quite so bad. It doesn't do that. The New Testament teaching doesn't focus on reforming and restructuring human systems which are never the root cause of human problems. The issue is always the heart of man. Which when wicked will corrupt the the best of systems and when righteous will improve the worst. If men's sinful hearts are not changed, they will find ways to oppress others regardless of whether there is actual slavery or not. On the other hand, spirit-filled believers will have just, uh, excuse me, just and harmonious relationships with each other no matter what system they live under. Men's basic problems and needs are not political, social, or economic, but spiritual. Let me pause from the quote for just a second. This is why I can't jump on the bandwagon with so many Christian brothers who uh, spend so much effort and energy on racial reconciliation. There is no issue of racial reconciliation. There is a sin issue that must be reconciled. It's the heart of the matter that must be dealt with, not the peripheral, the externals. Let me return to the commentator before I get myself in more trouble. Throughout history... He says, including in our own day, working people have been oppressed and abused by economic intimidation that amounts to virtual slavery. Regardless of the particular economic, social, or political system, Paul's teaching, therefore, applies to every business owner and every worker. There's our connection. So that any time we're coming to texts in the New Testament that are addressing slaves and slave owners... Our timeless truth, our takeaway from that is how are we interacting as employer, employees and employers in the same situation of superior to inferior in our roles and distinctions. Nowhere in Scripture is rebellion or revolution justified in order to gain freedom, opportunity, or economic, social, or political rights. The emphasis is on the responsibility of slaves to serve their human masters faithfully and fully in order to reflect the transforming power of God in their lives. They're to magnify the gospel in their lives so that even if they indenture themselves as slaves, the gospel so oozes forth from their personality and attitudes and actions, there is no denying you know, the gospel eventually did do away 
with slavery. As it exalted man's worth as one who was created in the image of God and it did raise his status. Notice that the New Testament nowhere condones or condemns, uh, condemns the practice. It instructs slaves and masters. The New Testament accepts it as a socio socioeconomic fabric of its time, never openly condemning nor sanctioning because a much greater issue to be addressed than slavery or racism is the issue of sin and separation from God that must be reconciled. So this parallel concept of employers and employees, there's always going to be structure, there's always going to be authorities, there's always going to be subservient roles. How is the gospel flourishing in your life, whether you are the master or the slave? Five gospel qualities that characterize Christians serving in such roles. Five timeless truths extending Centuries past its writing to us today of how Christianity or the gospel penetrates the inner spirit and desire to please God. Letter A. Urge them in this, that they are, letter A, to be subject to their own masters in everything. Subject. Could be translated obedient. Still the same word as the previous words Paul had for wives regarding their husbands. That they recognize there is headship in the home and there is male leadership in the local church. There's distinction, though equality. It's a military word describing ranks of soldiers arranging themselves under leadership of their commander. So that uh, you see the, the different ranks as they would line up in submission. Notice how this instruction takes place in the present, underscoring it is to be an abiding, constant attitude of submission. The Greek grammar makes it such that it is voluntary. You, you, you voluntarily submit yourself. And it's an attitude of a heart before an action of the life. Uh, I think we pointed that out last week in regards to younger women and their submission. Slaves, in subjection to your earthly authority, it begins with your submission to your heavenly authority. If you haven't submitted to the Lordship of Christ, you can't submit to any earthly lords. And can we say the contrary is true? that if you are not in subjection to earthly lords and structures, I doubt very much, based on what Scripture tells us, that you are in submission to your heavenly Lord. So here, whether speaking literally to slaves or those who are in subservient roles as an employee, even in the most servile of circumstances, believers are to be obedient. They're to be submissive. Seeking to please those whom you work for. Whether they're a believer or an unbeliever is inconsequential. Whether they're fair or unfair doesn't enter the formula. Whether they're kind or cruel does not negate or affirm this unparalleled requirement that you be in subject. Letter B, be well-pleasing. This is used by Paul a number of times in the New Testament, always speaking of what is pleasing to God. How do we know what's pleasing? What's in Scripture? Does this honor Christ or honor flesh? So it's service to God, again, before service to your earthly Lord and attitude of the heart. Are you in subjection? Are you well-pleasing? Letter C. He says, make sure you're, you teach them not to be argumentative. Literally contradicting. Are you contradictory? This kind of unfolds that term earlier, well-pleasing. What does well-pleasing look like? You're not argumentative. You're not argumentative against your boss, your, uh, the employer-employee relationship. Letter D, he says, you're not pilfering. 
This is a term used for embezzlement, misappropriation of funds, or stealing. It's only used one other place in the New Testament. It's used in Acts 5.2. Remember what Ananias and Sapphira did? We are told that they were guilty of embezzlement. Misappropriation of funds. You lied about it. You stole from the Spirit of God. It's all too easy to see your boss or the corporation that you might work for as some impersonal, wealthy entity that owes me something. And so I can pilfer from them to get it out of them one way or another. It was easy for slaves to indulge in petty theft. And in society today, for you to take home what does not belong to you. It doesn't matter if it's pens and paper from your desk that somebody else paid for. Logging on to the company's internet account for private use or driving the company car for personal errands. There's a lot of ways we can, we can try to justify our stealing. Titus, make sure your instruction to the slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ and to earthly lords are not those guilty of pilfering. You know, I think of a lady who served as a secretary for a uh, large company for 45 years, constantly taking home all the extra goodies and the pads of paper and the pens, and her grandchildren, uh, when it came ready to get time in the fall to get ready for school, they went to grandma's house to get uh, suited for school from her pilfering. Such abuses are out of bounds for Christians. Every aspect of our behavior must demonstrate that we can be fully trusted. And that's why he gives that last one, letter E, all good faith. All good faith. Showing all good faith. It must extend to all areas. Spirituality holds little interest if its doctrines are nullified by the lives of its followers. That's why Paul gets to the motive of it all. He's mentioned it twice already in the chapter. He says, why do you do what you do? What's the motive of your heart? What extracts these good deeds from your soul? It is so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. Adorn the gospel of God in every respect. It, this, uh, this word adorning is used of how, how uh, jewelers would uh, arrange jewels in a manner to set off their beauty. What do they do when they want to sell you the rings or the, or the fancy necklace? They pull out the nice, clean, lintless black velvet, right? Is that what they use? And they put it against it to adorn it, to make it stand out. It's what our lives are to do. As, as Paul writes to his other protege in the faith, Timothy... In 1 Timothy 2.9, when he instructs women of how to dress up, spiritually speaking, he says, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing. That's a must. Make sure that they adorn themselves with proper clothing, modesty and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for men and women making a claim to godliness. He's saying, what good is it if you look beautiful outside and inside, you're ugly because you haven't adorned the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're not robed in the perfections of Christ. Drawing out the natural beauty of how great and good and beautiful Christ is in the life that He's redeemed. This is another emphasis on the supreme purpose of a virtuous life. You and I are responsible to make attractive the teachings that God saves sinners, to adorn that message with our lives, to do credit to it, that God set us free, not only from the penalty of our sin, but the power of remaining sin. How does your commitment to pleasing your earthly Lord bring joy to your Heavenly Father? Have you considered that question as we've gone through this text? The slaves were given five virtues. Those who are owned to a master in the world standard. The slave in reality is not serving his earthly master. 
He's serving his heavenly master who will reward, who will vindicate in the end. But in the meantime, he must avoid unnecessary offense. The glory of the gospel is that it so transforms lives that even those in the lowest social order can adorn God's truth. From the lowest to the heights, they show that the gospel is beautiful, that the gospel is credible. So don't allow ungodly conduct to give occasion for the gospel message to be defamed. All these attitudes and actions that we began in verse 2 and walked down through these last few weeks are to give occasion for the gospel message that it might not be defamed. All of them commend the gospel because they are sound doctrine. So sound doctrine was to was Timothy's obligation. Teach what's fitting for sound doctrine. Here's what it looks like in the, the crowd of the congregation, the, the, the older men, the older women, the younger women, and the younger men. That message of healthy doctrine is just as much caught as it is taught by the example that we leave. Are you men sensible in your thoughts and in your deeds? You, know, you see the so what here. So that we will adorn the gospel. And all these various classes of people should be motivated by the desire that the Word of God be honored. The sound doctrine adorned and the enemy of the truth put to shame having been silenced by the consistency of godliness lived out. Would you pray with me? Our God, we exalt you for your plan of redemption in Christ who set us free from our sins. And we pray that as we have studied these last few weeks on godliness, that we would be coming to the table of the Lord with lives that have been examined for sins that have been confessed and a new commitment to walk in godliness as we see these gospel virtues instructed in this book, so aid us by the power of your Spirit and our own diligence and sensibility to apply this to our lives. That when others see the transforming work of the gospel, something we can take no credit to, we can make a segue to the gospel, take them to the foot of the cross where there is salvation, reconciliation, redemption, forgiveness of sin, we partake of the Lord's table, seeking to do it in a worthy way, asking that Jesus would be more adorned in our lives of righteousness this week. We pray in His matchless name. Amen.